Good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Milo. It's so good to have you here with us this morning. Have you ever made the unfortunate mistake of walking into the middle of a movie? Like you go down the hallway and the movie that you think is about to start on the right-hand side actually was supposed to start on the left-hand side, so you're coming halfway through the screening in the movie. And so you just get the end of the movie and you're wondering, what on earth is going on? Like, why are these people so mad at each other? Like, you're just trying to figure out what the whole time you're trying to put the pieces together, the story. If you've ever made that mistake, it's a very confusing spot to be. If you're a guest with us this morning, it's very feasible that you would come in today and we're kind of starting uh, in our sermon series today in the middle of the story. And so for a few moments, we're going to be able to go back and at least get you caught up to where we are so far. Uh, the song we just sang, Redeemed, I looked it up in the back just to make sure, and it's a Fanny Crosby song. So that's, uh, she wrote that song in the 1880s. And so if you think about the context in which she is writing just after the Civil War, and she's saying, redeemed, I love to proclaim it, redeemed, uh, so much around her was being redeemed. The Civil War had just uh, finished, and so uh, really there's this hurt of a nation that had been broken and then being able to put things back together. And if you know her story, she was blind as well. And so she had gone through her entire life uh, blind and being able to write those words and pen those words. You kind of come into the middle of the story when you sing that song. And some of you just went back to a moment in your memory of singing that song when you were a child or something. You just got to kind of lift that up. But other people, they're coming into the middle of the story. A couple of times this week we experienced that as a church as well. If you happen to go into Centerpoint this morning, this week we had hired a contractor to open up a doorway in the back of Centerpoint to the gymnasium, part of what we're doing uh, to be ready for the story that's coming up in December. We want to be able to move people through there. And as he opened up the wall, he hit something behind the wall and we realized, wait a minute. He, he brought me in and started to look at it. And, and, and Right where we're going to cut the door for, for this doorway that's going to go through to the gymnasium, he's hitting a door. He hit a door where we were going to put the door. And so as he opened the wall up, we realized that, and some of you know this, but the rest of us, hey, we're coming in the middle of the story. It's not our fault, all right? We didn't know that there was a door where we wanted to put the door. And so we opened the thing up. And, and we started pulling the, the paneling off and pulling some of the, there was a library. This is literally like 007 stuff. Like there was a library, there's a bookshelf, and behind the bookshelf is a door. And so we open up the door and realize as we pull it apart, there's a 40-foot sliding door, like barn door style, behind that. And it's all been hidden away for 50, 60 years. Uh, this building was built uh, 71, I believe, or 72. And so it's been there the whole time. And as soon as we needed it, All we had to do was open up the wall, and there was the door. And so, like, we kind of come in the middle of the story, and some of you remember, because I asked a few of you, like, what was this for? And because the first sanctuary was in the gymnasium, and so that was an overflow space to be able to open up those doors. And when uh, the services were really packed, they could kind of overflow all the way back into that space. And all these years later, we kind of come into the middle of the story. Also for planning for our Christmas story presentation that's uh, coming up, we drove, uh, John Flannery and I drove all the way to Albion to get a uh, hay wagon that we purchased for part of uh, what's going to happen. We're going to get on a hay wagon and sing some Christmas carols. It's all part of uh, what's coming with that. But as I went to get the wagon and I bring it back, uh, Pastor Brian, he's like, you went all the way to Albion to get this wagon? 
because it's a wagon and it's beat up and it's trashed. And I said, well, I didn't go to buy a new wagon. And so the neat thing about it was I went and I talked to the guy when we purchased it and I said, what were you using it for? And he said, well, I bought it at an auction from a farmer who had been using it for a number of years. And then I purchased it and I converted it. We had a tree farm for a number of years. And so people would climb into the back of it. And then in the front area of it, they would get their Christmas trees and drag their Christmas trees on it. And we'd go out into the woods and bring the Christmas trees back. And so like you're kind of coming into with this hay wagon, the middle of the story. Like now the story continues. We're putting sides on it. We're getting the thing all settled in so that we can have it up to Williamsville standards for our, um, <laughs> for our hayride. Uh, in, in the part of the state that I grew up in, we wouldn't have any concerns about the current condition of the wagon. Uh, but we'll get it up to ready and we're, we're working on that this afternoon. And so. Uh, Uh, Man, we're just so glad uh, that you're here this morning. I want you to know as you're coming into the middle of the story, uh, as in both of those situations, like it's exciting to talk about restoration and taking something uh, that had been and reusing it in a new way. Uh, Really, as we are hearing these words redeemed or we're looking at what God does through Scripture is He is a God of restoration. And he is a God who is taking what is broken and, and, and patching it up and fixing it up and being able to use it once Again, so if you open your Bibles this morning, will you open up to the book of Ruth? Ruth may be a little bit difficult to find if you're using the Bibles in front of you, those black Bibles in front of you, it's on page 279, because you might fly right by it as you're looking for it. So it's only a few pages uh, in Scripture, but we're going to cover it uh, this morning. So just to recap you to where we've been so far, we, uh, we don't meet Ruth right away. In the opening few verses in chapter 1, we meet uh, her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, and husband Elimelech, uh, they have been, uh, they've left the land of Israel and gone over to Moab. And in Moab, they've gone there because there has been a famine in the land. And so because there's a famine in the land, they went to this place, Moab, because there was food there. But Elimelech has taken his family away from all of the resources and all the protections that were actually in his homeland. And so, ironically, what ends up happening is he comes to this land uh, with his wife and his two sons. He suddenly passes away. And it's only a matter of time before his two sons have married and suddenly they both pass away. And so Naomi is left in this foreign land of Moab, far away from her family, the people she loves, the people that would care for her. She's left there with her two daughter-in-laws, not knowing what to do, where to go. And in that culture, they were in a bad, bad position. So she makes a decision. She's going to leave Moab, and she's going to come back to the land. She's heard that there might be, uh, the famine may be over, and people are starting to return. And so she's going to go back to Bethlehem, uh, the city of bread, and she's going to, she invites her daughter-in-laws to come with her. No, she doesn't. She tells her daughter-in-laws it would be better for them to stay there because they would have a chance. If they come with her, she's a bitter old woman with no options no opportunities. And so they make their way back. Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, she stays there. She says, you know what? You're right. This is a better place for me. I'm going to find my own way doing things that I need to do to make ends meet. But Ruth has a conversion experience, and Ruth tells her, you know what? From what I've seen, I'm going to leave my people. She says, your people will become my people. Your family will become my family. Your worship practices will become my worship practices. Your God will become my God. Your land, my land. And she joins her and comes over to Bethlehem. 
When they get to Bethlehem, Naomi is still this bitter woman who's angry at everyone, and she's, she just hates God and all the position that seemingly he has put her in, and Ruth needs to get out of the house. And so Ruth finds her way out, says, we're going to do something about this, and she gets a job working in the fields, and she gets a job happenstance, as it would be, as the kind of the setup is here in Scripture, that she works for this man, Boaz, the knight in shining armor, the most eligible bachelor in all the land, and she's there working for him. And as she works for him, she, she works and, and he protects her and says, you know what, there's other employers who would take advantage of you. I'm not going to do that. If you stay here in my fields, I'll make sure that you are well taken care of. And in the end, he gives her enough grain to supply her and Naomi for up to a year to ensure that they would be okay. Naomi's very excited about this. Uh, there's a little smile on the corner of her lip, even though she's bitter and she's angry. She says, you know what, maybe there's a chance yet. And so she assumes that Boaz might be interested in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. The problem is he's not moving fast enough. Uh, time is clicking in her mind. She says, after a week of this, this is, this is not going to work. We've got to move this thing along quicker. And so she sets up this devious plan for uh, Boaz to be coming to sleep in the barn where he is there with his workers. But he's coming to sleep. He's probably uh, had a few too many drinks. And all of a sudden, she set the table so that Ruth would be waiting for him there when he arrived late at night, potentially indisposed. But Boaz the man of integrity that he is, puts a stop to it, doesn't make any advances on her there, and tells her that he in the morning will do what he can to take care of her. And as they stand there in, a, in the doorway of the barn, is the way that I see in the doorway, they're on there stargazing together, thinking about their lives as how they may go in the future. He breaks the news to her that, oh, by the way, there's another person who has the right to marry you first before I have the opportunity to do so. That's where we are this morning. Some of you left last week going, What's going to happen? How's this going to work out? Some of you know the story well, and you wonder why it's important to stop there. We're, we're coming in here today because it's the next day. The opportunity now for Boaz to do what he said that he is going to do is here. How will the questions be answered? How is he going to take care of the needs of this family? God has provided for the needs of this family for them food-wise, but now they have need for family. So is Boaz going to take care of that or this other dude who somehow has an opportunity to do so first? So Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, is the next morning. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said to him, come over here, my friend, and sit down. If you take out your white sheet of paper that you got in your bulletins this morning, I've got fill-ins for you there today, but we're not going to quite get there yet. I just want you to kind of see where we're headed uh, so you know where the scripture is coming from. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles open, you see there this word, this kinsman redeemer. And you, you probably have already circled it. We asked you to take a, a look at it previously uh, back in chapter 2. But we want to talk about it again. There's these two words. One is in English, and one of the words is in Hebrew. And so the picture, that's really twofold there. So the first word, uh, kinsman, or meaning a near relative, a close relative, one of the, one of the family members nearby, the nearest of kin, and therefore uh, the closest relative to Naomi. 
So this would be the closest adult male relative to Elimelech, the one who died over in Moab, him and his sons. This is the closest male relative to him. The second word, redeemer, uh, would, would say that this person would have the right, if he was able, to purchase the property, acquire all the property that belonged to Elimelech and his sons. Uh, he would be able to uh, make sure that he would redeem it, to buy it back, to purchase it, uh, to inherit, basically, this property that belonged to him. This was a law that God had set up for the people of Israel, and so uh, he would be able to do so in a way that he would provide uh, in disastrous circumstances and tragic circumstances that people might face, he would provide a way for them to redeem the land through the closest relatives. If you want to uh, follow along on the screen, I'm going to go back to Leviticus chapter 25 to explain where this is coming from. So Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 25, says this. This is the law that I'm reading. If one of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, take a left, find your way over to Leviticus. Uh, we're in a few verses here in Leviticus and then Deuteronomy. So Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites become poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, and later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance to the one that they sold it. They can go back to their own property. What's happening here is the redeemer is able to come in, purchase the property, and be able to raise their own family on the property. If the one who has lost the value, lost the ability to maintain that property, the, the, uh, the, this little string attached is if they ever get to the point where they have the means to purchase it themselves, they can then purchase it back from the redeemer. So the, everything that is going on there, that this allows the clan or the people to be able to keep the land within the family so they are not losing <coughs> land uh, to, to an outsider. If you think about the backstory of who the Israelites were, they were a people who, who went to the land of Egypt. You remember that? And so they were taken away from their land, and they, they've gone through great trials and tribulations. They've gone through great difficulties to be able to have land once again. And so they were going to make darn sure that they weren't going to give it up uh, again. They wanted to keep it in the family. So that's how they dealt with the land. Now, if we want to fast forward to Deuteronomy. So if you've got your Bibles there, take, take a couple pages over, but I'll read it to you as well. <coughs> Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, if you remember also, in the days of Ruth, she's living during the judges' time period. And so uh, these things are not necessarily being practiced by everyone in the land. We, we learn at the end of the book of Judges that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And so to assume that they were all living by this code would be a mistake. So they're all doing whatever feels good, whatever looks good, whatever is profitable to them, which is why this book is applicable to us today, because that's the same environment we live in today. But this is the law that they were supposed to be living by. Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning of verse 5, says this. If brothers are living together or near each other and one of them dies without any sons, his widow will not or must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So if, if a husband dies, 
the wife has had no sons born to so there's no one to carry on the family lineage. It was the law or it was their practice for them to actually have a family member marry her and bear children with her so that she would have the opportunity to carry on the family name, looking for that son who would carry on the family name. So God's going to make sure that the name continues as far as the land is concerned. He's going to make sure uh, that the family name would continue as well, although it has this clause. However, if a man does not, so this is how serious this is, that the brother-in-law should uh, do this, but if he is not willing to, he does not want to marry his brother's wife, she can go to the elders of the town and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him, and they will talk to him. If he persists in saying, so they're going to have a good talking to him. You understand that? Uh, they're, going to, they're going to make sure that he understands what is at stake here for the whole community of why this needs to continue. He says, I don't want to marry her for whatever his reasons are. Maybe she's got big buck teeth or she's got, there's a, some, some reason why. Those of us with buck teeth, we have to just, just chill out a little bit, all right? but there's some reason he doesn't want to marry her, then this is what happens. His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of all the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And from that day forward, the man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. That's pretty rough. From that day forward, you get this stamp on you that says you are the unsandaled family. Now, there's many people who walk around barefoot all the time. I've got little kids who love that at any time of the year, all the time. They're walking around with no shoes. But this is an entirely different connotation. Because this is saying that this is the family who would refuse to care for their own. It's a picture of shame. And so it's honorable to provide for your family. <coughs> excuse me, to provide and keep the land in your family as well as maintaining the name of your family. In Ruth 4, Boaz says, there is a family member, there is a kinsman redeemer that is closer to you than me and he has the right to redeem. And so what Boaz does, we've got Boaz going to the town gate where everybody is coming and going, and he assembles the elders there. We're going to kind of see what matter of business is going to take place. This is a venue that you would normally do business in the town, the coming and going of the town. This is the place where you would call everyone out. Uh, this week, we've had plenty of very public C-SPAN type of things going on in our nation. That is this airing of what's been going on behind closed doors for everyone to see. On a small scale in this town, in this neighborhood, this is what's happening. They're bringing all the dirt out for everyone to see and trying to get to a resolution to this problem. So you've got these crowds of people, and English doesn't really help us out when we're looking here in Ruth chapter 2. The commentaries are showing and teaching me that actually when he said, and just so happens the man happened to come to town that day, is this idea of happenstance that the authors are really saying this is a very deliberate thing that is happening. It's this kind of coincidence that the kinsman redeemer is coming along, and he just happened to come along, or just then the kinsman redeemer 
is coming along. So he just happens to be coming along. Boaz just happens to be waiting for him there and just happens to have all the elders of the city gathered around. And he leans over to him and he says, come over here, friend. Now, I don't think he forgot the guy's name. I don't think it was one of those, you know those situations, right? And it happens here on Sundays every single week all the time where you say, hey there, friend. Hello, guy, shooter, partner, howdy, y'all. Boaz knows who this guy is. Uh, he, He knows exactly who he is. And he comes over and he says, he brought 10 of the elders of the town. He says, sit here. And they did so. So what we get to do here is as we look into the scripture, we get to see the transaction that's about to happen, the conversation and all the witnesses that are there. The reason we have such a detail of this is because it was marked down. You've got 10 elders and they're surrounding them both, but like you've got a growing crowd of people also there to be able to see how this whole thing is going to take place. Whole crowd of folks, C-SPAN is watching, they're keeping attention, they're, 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 how will all of this, what's normally done behind closed doors or normally done with just a few people is being done out in the open square for all to see. So if you did get that white sheet of paper out, here's your first fill I want to have for you this morning so you understand the context of what is happening with this kinsman redeemer. Here's your first fill in. Ready to redeem. The redeemer must be ready to redeem. Let me read that again. Meanwhile, Boaz up the town gate. He sat down just as the guardian redeemer, or kinsman redeemer he had mentioned, come along. Boaz said, come, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town. He said, sit here, and they also did. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matters to your attention, suggest that you buy in the presence of those seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now remember the piece that we just went back to in Leviticus that said, if she had the means to do so, if suddenly she came into some money, she would have the opportunity to be able to buy her way back into the property that was rightfully hers. That's what he is talking about here when it says her Naomi's land that she has uh, to purchase. But it's not just the land that is going to be purchased, but we'll get there in a second. It says, no one has the right to do except you, and after that I'm next in line. And the man responds, I will redeem it, he said. So this is an offer that he can't refuse. This is, he's been given the golden ticket. Everything has been put out here perfectly for him to just kind of step up to the plate and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. What, what he get is this, this deal is basically for the price of the land, which again was everything to them, uh, that he could pr- produce fruit from. He'd be able to, uh, to hand this down to his kids. And after generations, he'd be able to take care of this land, pass it down to his sons, and this would be his family land. And all he has to do in return for this is take care of Naomi, a woman in her old age, a mean old woman. She's cross-eyed. She's hobbling around. She's got a bad leg. It looks like she might not be around that much longer anyway. And so all he has to do is hold on to her for a few more years, and then he has this thing that he can hand to his sons and to his family and carry on. It seems like in the long run, this is an investment worth the making. He is ready to redeem. Let's continue on. Here's your second fill-in for you this morning. He is able to redeem. 
Continuing on here, it says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy in the presence of all those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you do not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he says. Then Boaz says, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also require, acquire Ruth the Moabite, that dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So he brings in this Ruth the Moabite. He says, oh, by the way. So the musical score is beginning to swell. We're starting to realize, oh, this is what Boaz has planned. This is what he meant when he said, tomorrow morning I'll take care of the problem. So he set the table and then points out the fact that he's going to have to deal with Ruth. And he adds on the Moabite. As we've talked about in previous weeks, the Moabites were not a people that they wanted anything to do with. They were known for their sexual promiscuity. They were known to be built out of or or grown out of a really incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. They wanted nothing to do with the Moabites. If you notice back in chapter 3 when Ruth is described, she is never given this name Ruth the Moabite anymore. Then she is simply Ruth. But when he is dealing shrewdly with his kinsman redeemer, he points out the fact that she is Ruth the Moabite. The dead man's widow in order to maintain some of the dead, the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So what happens here is he thinks about the cost of what it takes now to not only take in Naomi, the old woman, but now he's going to have to take in the younger woman, which means he's going to have to have a child with her, which means that he is going to have to provide for her and for this child and for all of them. And he says, that is not what I want to get into. He's able to do so, but he is choosing not to do so. And then furthermore, it tells us here, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the garden redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Again, going back to the, the framework of the law that has been given there, him taking off this sandal and voluntarily giving away authority was a slap in the face, certainly to Naomi, but even more so to Ruth. He gives the sandal off, he gives it to Boaz. At this point, Boaz is beaming from ear to ear. This is what he was looking for. This was the plan that he had set up. This is the woman that he was looking for. It's like a Rocky movie. He runs up the steps. He's cheering at the top. He's, and the music swells. He's, he's ready to be able to do it. And he turns to the crowd. He gathers everyone around. And he says, we, we need to make sure that you understand what is going around here. And so the orchestra music, it fades because he's about to speak. And he turns around and he faces everyone. And he begins to speak in verse 9. He announces to the elders and all the people. Today you are the witnesses what I have bought from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, (coughs) Malan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among this family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. 
And then all the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are the witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. These are the big figurehead women of their culture who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing at Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Thou, uh, through the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. This moment is fantastic. It gathers everyone around. And here's your third filling for you this morning. Because not only is he ready, not only is he able, but he is willing to redeem. He is willing to redeem and do so with a little bit of flair. He is pursuing this woman, and he is taking her. Uh, look at where we have come from. This was Ruth the Moabite. Then it was Ruth the foreigner. Then it was Ruth the servant or Ruth the slave. And now she's gone from foreigner to slave to servant to now Ruth, his wife. That is the story of redemption that is being played out for us here. But we need to remember that this is not just a story that happened 3,000 years ago in this cute couple that we get to read about this morning. This is not a romantic uh, novel that we're just reading and it just it makes us feel nice. But ultimately it is given to us in Scripture because there is a bigger story that is being played. Think of the transformation that has happened. The book of Ruth opens up at the beginning of the book of Ruth with, with three funerals. In the first few verses of the book, there is death everywhere you see. And so this is what happens when God gets involved in the story. Here's some fill-ins for you. God brings his people from death unto life. The beginning of the book starts with a funeral. The end of the book ends with a marriage and a wedding and ultimately a baby. The Almighty God is sovereign over both, over death and over life. He has a larger plan in motion. He is not going to be confused or thrown off by the fact that this woman doesn't seem to fit into things the way that everyone thinks that she should. Instead, he is a God who is taking the broken pieces and putting them back together, a God of restoration. Secondly, God brings his people from curse to blessing. Naomi had the curse of all curses on her in ancient Israel. She had no heir to carry on her family name. She had no property anymore because she had been in a place where she was with not God's people and not God's land and not favored anymore. When she comes back, she says, call me bitter. But God moves people from curse to blessing, and your next feeling is God moves people from bitterness where she was at to happiness. Can you imagine the smile on Naomi's face? You know that as these ten elders gathered around and this, this unnamed individual, you understand that the Boaz, it wasn't that Boaz didn't know his name. It was because of the way that this kinsman redeemer pushed it aside and just gave it away and threw his sandal back out there. It was despicable. And so the authors of this book won't even name him in here because he's the family of the unsandaled. Naomi's face, Ruth's face, as they gather with the crowd and they realize what this means, she goes from bitterness to happiness. Don't call me bitter anymore. Call me ecstatic. Call me overjoyed. She's brought from bitterness to happiness. And your next fill-in, 
God brings his people from emptiness to fullness. Remember at the end of chapter 1, when Naomi is coming back from Moab, she comes back with absolutely nothing. They went there thinking that this was going to be a land where they'd be able to provide for themselves, that they would be able to raise a family, that they would be able to have food to sustain them, that they would be able to take care of themselves. And they go to this foreign land and come back with nothing. And yet now, as she looks forward, as she she hears this declaration, let this be the testimony of all the witnesses, know that this woman will be my wife. As that announcement is made, all of a sudden there's this major shift in both of their lives. They have absolutely nothing, and now the trajectory shows that they have access to absolutely everything. The Lord brought me back empty, and now next to her stands Ruth, this Moabite woman whose, whose story is being redeemed and restored. She's coming from, from somewhere way far away from God's people, and yet she is being brought in, and now she is going to be part of the lineage of the Son of God himself. Naomi, who had been pushed away, who, who didn't have <coughs> any standing in the city, now she has status in the community. Now she can walk around the community knowing that is Naomi, the one who went away, but now she's a property owner. She's part of the HOA. She knows, you know that she's part of the community once again, from emptiness to fullness. So furthermore then, God brings his people from despair unto hope. From despair unto hope. As we're coming towards the end of this book, we don't look back at it. And we have one more week here that really will help us project next week to really see where this goes. But when we look forward into the generations that will come, this is this unbelievable, completely unimaginable future for Naomi. Do you understand that? There is no way she could fathom what God was going to do when she was desperate and in despair. There's no way she could possibly imagine what God was up to. The future of where this line is going to go, to King David himself, the story was not over from despair unto hope. And what you need to hear this morning is your story is not over either, friend. I don't know what you're coming in with this morning. I don't know what you came through those doors with, what type of anxiety you're carrying, what type of background you're coming from. What, whatever your story is, if Thanksgiving that is coming up this week is, is bringing, it, you're breaking out in hives right now thinking about the conversation you will have to have the amount of time that you're going to have to spend with those close to you, and you are afraid of having to go through that. You need to understand, friends, that God takes his people from despair into hope. In Titus chapter 2 in the New Testament, we read this. We will wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The author here is acknowledging the fact that we are wicked and sinful and despicable in and of our own right on our very best day. And yet he comes along and redeems us from that desperate moment, that desperate place, from Moab. And we come back 
and stand before the Father. We are purified. We are redeemed before him. A children called his very own. And what do we do? We are eager to do what is good. We are eager to demonstrate and to live a life full of hope because we understand what he has done for us. The purpose of Boaz and Ruth in this historical context, the reason why we have this story is so that it doesn't give us just a nice love story, but it points us to the way that Christ is working all the way through history to be able to reconnect the dots, to be able to paint the picture that he is painting, not the one that you and I are drawing. In all of his supreme glory and by his grace. The story pushes forward and we see that he took on the robe of human flesh so that he could redeem every single one of us because he is the only one who could do so. He is without sin. He became near to us. The message translation when it reads in the first chapter of John, it says, God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who started it all, moved into our neighborhood so that we could have access to him, so that he could be the kinsman redeemer, so that he could be the one who is ready to redeem. He is the one who is able to redeem, but even more so, he is the one who is willing to redeem. As the band comes forward this morning, we need to be reminded that although you may be ready to change your life, you may be willing to change your life, you are not able to do so, friend. A lot of times we will read self-help books, we will go to meetings and do different things that we really want, particularly in the new year coming, we really want to make a better life for ourselves. And so we are ready, we are willing but we're actually not able to do so in and of our own power. You understand that? But the Lord that we serve, the Redeemer that we have, He is not like that unnamed man who had the ability to do so and yet didn't do it. He is willing, so willing, in fact, that He gave His Son for you and for me. This morning's baptisms, the reason why we do that this very public display is because it is an illustration of what has happened on the cross, of us taking on the, the beautiful thing that has happened when Jesus was, was buried, he was taken under the ground, but then he came out of the grave, raised to walk with newness of life. Just like being washed in water when it all falls away, when you come back out and you are clean. We present ourselves clean in baptism before the world, understanding and knowing it is symbolism, yes, but that symbolism is of something beautiful and powerful that God has done in the life of everyone who believes in him. And we no longer live in despair, but we live in hope. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ushers, if you'll come forward this morning. You have an opportunity today. There's a card in front of you. Pull that out. Write your name on it, please. To be able to say, listen, I don't know, Pastor Milo, exactly what you're getting at this morning. I, I do feel like I'm coming into the middle of the story. I don't know exactly how we got there, but I'd be willing to ask you, or let's dialogue a little bit about where this conversation could take us. 
Because just like that moment for Ruth and Naomi as they are standing in the crowd, the trajectory of what would change when Boaz spoke to the people and said, I'm taking her on as my wife. It's the same moment some of you were at this morning. It's been offered to you. God's gift of salvation has been put there for you and that the hope is there for you. But really at the end of the day, Ruth was going to have to marry Boaz. And for some of you this morning, your kinsman redeemer stands before you. He says, I will redeem. I am ready, willing, and able. I will redeem you. Will you marry me? So this morning, Lord, I pray that there are many here today that would understand the gift that has been given. Understand the sacrifices that have been made on every person in humankind's behalf. Lord, it was not limited to those who lived in the first century. It's not limited to those who understand our Western church. It's not limited to any of those things, God, because you are not tied by time nor space. So if there's one, if there are many, Lord, who would be willing to to, to make that first initial step to say, I, I, I've seen the baptism this morning, I've heard the message this morning, I just want some more information or I wanna learn a little bit more. Others, Lord, have accepted you long ago, but for some reason they are living a bitter life. Even though everything, literally everything has been changed for them. So if that is you this morning, I pray that you would have the courage to respond as well. To live a life of hope, of expectancy, waiting for the coming Savior to take us to glory. Because he makes all things new, friends. Whatever you're going through, what, whatever damaging relationship you're in, understand that God is a God of restoration. Lord, we don't know how it all works. We're confused at times by the moving pieces, but we put all of the trust that we can muster in you this morning. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you continue to work in people's hearts even as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray.